Hello, my name is Paolo Galizia. I'm a clinical professor of law at Fordham University in New York City. And today I'm going to talk about the regulation of air, the atmosphere, and climate change under international law. And the way we'll structure this lecture is, first of all, with an overview of the customary rules that regulate this sector of international environmental law. And secondly, I'm going to give a brief overview of some of the key regimes in this area. So, first of all, let's start with uh, the regulation under customer international law. And uh, the regulation of atmospheric pollution is probably one of the earliest and best developed area of international environmental law. So, there's actually several rules and instruments in this particular field of law. And, of course, atmospheric pollutants, by their very nature, cross boundaries, and therefore it's natural that this is an area where international cooperation is particularly developed. In this field, we also have the first case that really developed, contributed to the development of international environmental law. And that case is known as the Trail Smelter Arbitration. It's a 1941 case, and it's a case between Canada and the United States. This is a landmark decision because, as I said, it contributed to the development of international environmental law more generally. So it's not just the case that focuses on protection of the environment and specifically air pollution, atmospheric pollution, but it also contributed to the development of a broader rule of customary international law in this field. This case arose out of a dispute between the United States and Canada. And the dispute really arose out of the presence of a trail smelter in Canada that emitted fumes that reached the territory of Washington State in the United States. So the question for the arbitral tribunal was, are there any rules under international law that regulate the activities of a Canadian company that emits fumes that cause damage in the United States? And the two sides decided to submit the dispute to an international tribunal. For our purposes, what is important about this decision is a passage in the arbitral award. And I'm going to read and quote the passage that the tribunal um, critically laid out. And it basically said, under the principles of international law, no state has the right to use or permit the use of its territory in such a manner as to cause injury by fumes in or to the territory of another or the properties or person therein when the case is of serious consequences and the injury is established by clear and convincing evidence. This particular passage of the tribunal decision has then become known as Principle 21 of the Stockholm Declaration, Principle 2 of the Uri Declaration, which is basically the customary obligation that states have not to allow the use of the territory to cause damage to the territory of other states. So, this principle is now a principle of customary international law that applies, obviously, to atmospheric pollution, but it also applies to pollution more generally. The second customary law obligation that states have under international law is the general obligation to cooperate in the protection of the environment. And of course, these obligations apply to the protection of the atmosphere as well. So these are the two main customary rules that exist in broad international environmental law, but as I said, that specifically apply to atmospheric pollution. 
principle 21.2 that derives from the trails melter arbitration and other customary practices from states and the obligation to cooperate. So customary law, however, tends to be very general. The obligations for states under customary law are not as clear, as precise, as the obligations that are found in international treaties. And that's why there are actually several international agreements that regulate atmospheric pollution, and of course there are several treaties these days that regulate climate change. Those treaties generally tend to follow a similar model, a similar legislative model. They, first of all, will lay out general provision in what is often known as a framework convention. Sometimes the term framework convention is actually used. Other times the convention is a general framework treaty, even though the specific term may not be used. The framework convention in generally will contain soft obligation on the particular subject area that is object of regulation. So the framework convention will very often simply say the state parties agree to take stock of the problem, work together to solve the problem, and then what the framework agreement will do is lay out and set up institutions for further cooperation. The framework convention is then followed by more specific and detailed protocols. The protocols are also legally binding, of course, for the states that ratify them, but what the protocols to the conventions will do is really add to the text of the convention with more specific obligation. And in international environmental lawmaking, this protocols and this model is particularly useful because it allows for flexibility. States may agree with the general treaty that lays out obligation to address a particular environmental problem, but may or may not be ready to deal with a more specific obligation. Secondly, protocols allow for flexibility to adapt to scientific development. When scientists learn about a particular problem, about a particular pollutant that needs to be addressed under an international treaty, they can actually add, through the international legal regime, a particular protocol to deal with, say, a particular pollutant. So this is the structure of environmental treaties, and we're going to look at three particular regimes. First, we're going to look at the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe Convention on long-range transboundary pollution that really tries to address the problem of acid rain. This is a regional convention adopted under the auspices of the UNS UNESCE. Secondly, we're going to look at a global treaty, a global treaty that's been very successful in dealing with the depletion of the ozone layer. And thirdly, we're going to overview, have an overview of the treaty regimes that are dealing with climate change and the fight against these global environmental problems. The Convention on Long-Range Transboundary Air Pollution, as I said earlier on, it's a model treaty, and it's a treaty adopted within a regional regime. So this is not a treaty of global application, it's a treaty of regional application, and it has 32 parties. It includes all the members of the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe, which also includes the United States and Canada. The Convention was adopted in 1979, specifically with the goal of addressing the problem of acid rain within the European region. This Convention is broad in scope, and the Convention itself 
has soft obligation. The text of the convention simply lays out the obligation for state parties to cooperate in addressing the problem of acid rain. And then, as I was saying earlier, there are eight protocols. The eight protocols, I, I don't think I need to list all of them because I think the audience will be lost if I list every single one of them. But again, what I want to emphasize is this model of a convention that lays out soft obligation for states to cooperate, sets up institutions for states to work together in addressing a problem, and then in this particular case there are eight treaties that have been adopted in order to address eight specific situations. The treaties that probably, the treaties that I can mention is the 1984 Geneva Protocol, 1991 Geneva Protocol to the Convention, and then there's a 1994 Oslo Protocol. So for those interested in how the issue of acid rain has been dealt within the Convention regime, I would say these are the three protocols to particularly focus on. There are other regional agreements that I'm going to simply mention that deal with the atmospheric pollution, of air pollution more broadly. One interesting regime is the bilateral regime in 1991 between Canada and the United States. It's called the 1991 Canada-US Air Quality Agreement. And then another interesting regime that has been adopted at the regional level in Southeast Asia is the agreement on transboundary haze pollution that was adopted uh, because of the forest fires in Indonesia and the far-ranging regional problem of haze that uh, uh, came out of that situation in the Southeast Asian region. So these are just two treaties that uh, I would like to mention. But well, what I want to focus now is really is probably one of the most effective environmental treaties dealing with uh, atmospheric pollution, and in particular the ozone treaties. The two treaties that deal with the depletion of the ozone layer are First of all, the 1985 Vienna Convention on the Ozone Layer, and then the 1987 Montreal Protocol on Substances that Deplete the Ozone Layer. These two treaties have achieved wide ratification, and in fact, they probably are the treaty with the most state parties of all treaties in any area, whether it's environment, human rights, or anything else. In fact, 198 states have ratified both treaties. It gets a little bit more complicated because the Montreal Protocol has been amended several times. So there are several amendments to the Montreal Protocol and most amendments have been ratified by virtually all the parties to the original protocol. In fact, most countries, 197 countries, have ratified the London Amendment, the Montreal Amendment, and so on and so forth. The latest amendment to the Ozone Protocol, the Montreal Protocol, was adopted in Kigali, and that amendment has been ratified by 127 countries. So it's important that when you're looking at the ozone regime, you need to bear in mind the two treaties, the Vienna Convention and the Montreal Protocol, but of course you really need to look at the Montreal Protocol as it was amended over the different years. The Vienna Convention, the Framework Convention, is the first international treaty that deals with a global environmental problem. And it's a landmark agreement for several reasons. First of all, it deals with a problem that is still, to some extent, uncertain, but obviously deals with it through the precautionary principle lens. So the precautionary approach is part of the 
fundamental legal framework of this treaty. And what the ozone layer regime is remarkable for is for the emergence of strong developing countries that are really adamant that this international regime will need to take into consideration the differences in contributing to the problem and the differences in the ability to address the problem. So these two aspects of the Vienna Convention will be reflected in subsequent environmental regimes as well. Precaution on the one hand and common but differentiated responsibility. That is the term that will be used in later treaties in the Rio Declaration and further treaties, but really that sees its origin in the ozone layer regime. As the Framework Convention says, it really simply puts in place soft obligation. States agree to address the problem of the depletion of the ozone layer and agree to work together and set up institutions in order to do so. The concrete and strong obligations are, however, found in the 1987 Montreal Protocol. And the 1987 Montreal Protocol contains very clear and very specific obligations for states. Let me just look at some of the provisions in the Montreal Protocol. And I can just mention some of the articles and then the audience can just look into those provisions more specifically. But first and foremost, the substances regulated under the Montreal Protocol are found in annexes to the protocol. And just simply to mention the names, the protocol regulates CFCs, halons, B, other fully allocinated CFCs, HCFCs, methyl bromide, and so on and so forth. You know, I'm a lawyer. Most of the audience is probably lawyers, and maybe this term don't mean very much. But essentially, all these substances are found in refrigerators, air conditioners, and scientists told us that they contribute to the depletion of the ozone layer. And what the protocol does, essentially, first puts in place control measures. If you look at Article 2 of the Montreal Protocol, it lays out a number of measures that are designed to control the consumption and the production of the controlled substances, with the goal of virtually getting to a point where the consumption and the production is eliminated. Many of the substances have, in fact, completely eliminated, and others are on the way to being phased out or eliminated because of their contribution to the depletion of the ozone layer. So Article 2 lays out the control measure designed to do so. What is particularly interesting about the provisions in Article 2 is that there are grace periods in different timetables for developing countries. So the common but differentiated principle that I mentioned earlier on is fully implemented in the Montreal Protocol because different countries are given different timetables in order to meet the obligation under this treaty. Another interesting provision that the Montreal Protocol contains is that it not only controls trade with parties to the treaty, it also controls trade with non-parties. Article 4 of the Montreal Protocol regulates trade with non-parties. Of course, because of its broad ratification, every country has ratified the Montreal Protocol. This particular provision is not as significant from a practical perspective because everybody has joined the protocol. But what is interesting from a legal point of view 
is the fact that uh, this treaty contains regulation also for trade with non-parties and we know under international law treaties are only binding and contain obligation for the parties to the treaty not for non-parties as i said the practical situation is that everybody is a party and therefore it hasn't got as big an effect as it would have otherwise had but i think it's significant to see this particular provision article 5 of the montreal protocol specifically deals with the special situation of developing countries. Article 8 of the protocol lists a non-compliance mechanism. And another provision that I think is very interesting is the financial mechanism that has been set up under the Montreal Protocol. And the financial mechanism is particularly important because, again, it recognizes that developing countries will implement their obligation if they receive the financial support from the developed world. And secondly, what is particularly interesting about the financial mechanism is the executive committee that has been set up to implement and make decisions on behalf of the financial mechanism has a double majority that includes developed and developing countries. So this particular model of treaty making really is focused on the recognition of the developing countries' special needs, special circumstances, and gives the developing countries significant role in the implementation of the convention. And it has been a very successful treaty, I think, in terms of international lawmaking, international environmental lawmaking. We can see that this has been one of the most effective treaty regimes that we have designed. And it's interesting to ask ourselves, what are the reasons for the success of this treaty regime? And what can we learn to implement the same reasons for other treaty regimes to deal with other environmental problems such as climate change? And I would say there are a couple of reasons that I can think of. First of all, there was strong support among the international community at one point, there was strong support from the scientific community. So the scientific community and the international community was really strongly behind the need to take action to deal with the depletion of the ozone layer. Secondly, there was public support. I think in the 80s and in the early 90s, there were a lot of publications that were of immediate understanding to the public. The idea that because of the hole in the ozone layer, people might develop skin cancer if exposed to the sun, and so on and so forth. So the public really could immediately understand and identify with the problem, and therefore put pressure on the political leaders to take action on the depletion of the ozone layer. Thirdly, there was support from the industry. The industry realized that they could simply come up with substitutes to basically eliminate the substances that contributed to the depletion of the ozone layer and continue producing fridges and air conditioner without substances that would contribute to this problem. We will see that some of the substances that replace those that contributed to the depletion of the ozone layer now are found to be contributing to climate change. And therefore, there is now a Kigali amendment to the Montreal Protocol that addresses that particular problem. But to go back to one of the reasons why this protocol received so much support from states, again, the industries was behind, they were behind the adoption of this treaty. It was to some extent in their interest because they were replacing old technology with new technology. And some argue that the Montreal Protocol has been so effective that the hole in the ozone layer will be 
fixed, that the problem will be fixed by 2050. You know, I'm not a scientist, so don't quote me on this particular issue, but that's what you can read if you just go online and see how effective this treaty regime has been. So that's the second treaty regime that I just mentioned briefly. And now what I wanted to do is to look at the third set of rules and regimes in international that have been adopted to deal with the global problem, climate change, or today many people refer to really the climate crisis because of the urgency that the international community feels in addressing this particular problem. All right, now what I'm going to do now, I'm going to focus on the international regimes to address climate change and with a little bit of a history of where do we came from and where we are. Before I look at the chronology, the historical development of the international climate change, let me from the outset say that the international regime, the three treaties that address climate change at the global level are first, the 1992 United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, second, the 1997 Kyoto Protocol to the Convention, and lastly, the 2015 Paris Agreement. So these are the three agreements that regulate climate change at the international level. However, these three agreements also need to be understood in a more specific context. There are several rules that have been adopted by the institutions set up under the Climate Change Convention that also serve as institution under both the Kyoto Protocol and the Paris Agreement. So there's tons of rules and regulations that address very specific provision, very specific mechanism under this treaty regime. We're not going to look at each specific mechanism, each specific set of rules, because the idea is to give a broad understanding of what the international regulation on climate change is. And the international regulation first was fast with the adoption of the 1992 convention, then it proceeded equally faster with the adoption of the 1997 Kyoto Protocol, and then it took a long time to get to the third agreement, which was the 2015 Paris Agreement. And the length of negotiation and the speed at which the international community addresses this challenge very much varies and depends on public opinion, scientific developments, and the political leadership surrounding this issue. In 1988, to see where the whole international regime started, the World Meteorological Organization and the United Nations Environmental Programme established the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was established in 1998, and this is the body that really provides scientific guidance on the negotiation of the climate change regime. Of course, scientists need to tell policymakers what the problem is, they need to produce evidence. Once the evidence convinces policymakers that there is a problem, then policymakers will take action at the international level. And the 19, the IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, produced its first report on the status of the science on climate change in 1990. And the first assessment report concluded that uh, the problem was serious, that it was anthropocentric, that it was caused by human activities, and as a result of the report, the same year, the United Nations General Assembly set up an intergovernmental negotiating committee to negotiate, and for the first time they met in February 1991, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. 
The convention was negotiated in a relatively short period of time, and it was open for signature at Rio de Janeiro at the Earth Summit in 1992. It entered into force in 1994. So the time between the first assessment report, the negotiation, and the entry into force is relatively short. The reason why it was fairly easy to some extent to negotiate a treaty and to have agreement on climate change was because, as the name of the treaty says, this is a framework convention. So it's an agreement to deal with the problem. It contains largely, as we will see, soft obligation. However, the problem of climate change and the climate crisis didn't get any better. It actually continued to get worse and worse and worse. And therefore, almost as soon as the convention entered into force, there was the need to adopt a more stricter, clear set of rules committing states to actually take measure, concrete measure, to deal with the problem of climate change. And that's why, in 1997, a new agreement, the Kyoto Protocol, was adopted that, as we will see, contains more specific obligations for states. The 1997 Kyoto Protocol, however, was controversial, and in particular was controversial because states that negotiated it ended up not ratifying the Kyoto Protocol. And in particular, obviously, the United States negotiated and participated in the negotiation of the Kyoto Protocol, but never ratified the Kyoto Protocol. And therefore, the goals of the Protocol were already difficult to achieve because of the absence of such an important player in the international regime. Over the years, there's been conferences of the parties, meetings, summits at the various levels, until there was a breakthrough in 2015, when in Paris, the Paris Agreement was adopted. And the Paris Agreement is now in force, has been widely ratified as well, and the U.S. withdrew from the Paris Agreement in 2020, but now the U.S. has rejoined the Paris Agreement. So let's look at what the key provisions in the three treaties are to just get an overview of the international regime on climate change. First of all, the fundamental principles that underpin the regime on climate change are sustainable development, common but differentiated responsibility, and earlier on, I would say today probably this principle is not as important, the precautionary principle. Sustainable development, critical because developing countries are as concerned with the problem of climate change as they are concerned, of course, with poverty eradication and development. So the Convention really aims at addressing the climate crisis, which affects, of course, every country in the world, but in particular affects mostly vulnerable developing countries. They will feel more the consequences because they also have least means to address the problem of climate change and the concerns of climate change. There's a recognition of that. Common but differentiated responsibility, as I said, it's fundamental in the whole regime because there is a recognition that developing countries contributed very little, or in many cases not at all, to the origin of the problem, but will be disproportionately affected by the problem caused by climate change. And precaution was a principle at the beginning of the negotiation, but I would say today there is truly overwhelming science 
that climate change is caused by human activities. Scientists have been warning us all the time and more and more and more increasingly vocal about the problems of climate change, so much so that we now call it a climate crisis. And I would say the debate surrounding the science on climate change and whether climate change exists or doesn't exist is really a debate that it has become marginal. I would say there is a consensus that we are in a time of crisis when it comes to climate change, and that is reflected in some extent, to some extent, in the international agreements that have been adopted. But now, the Climate Change Convention, the Framework Convention, lays out general principles and also lays out what was the objective of the Convention. And it's interesting to see the changes over the years on the objectives of the Convention. Article 2 of the Climate Change Convention, the 1992 agreement, says the ultimate objective of this convention and any related legal instruments that the conference of the parties may adopt is to achieve, in accordance with the relevant provisions of the convention, stabilization of greenhouse gas concentration in the atmosphere at a level that would prevent dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system. So in 1992, the goal was stabilization. The idea was to stabilize greenhouse gas concentration in order to avoid dangerous interference with the climate system. We will see that that goal to some extent has changed because we have not been able to stabilize greenhouse gas concentration. What we are now trying to do is adapt to the climate change that we think is already occurring and might get worse unless drastic actions are adopted and mitigate. So we will see that under Paris Agreement, the goal of the international community used to be stabilization, now is really moved to mitigation and adaptation. But the Convention says we need to stabilize greenhouse gases. Article 3 of the Convention is particularly interesting because it talks about the principles that I've just mentioned. Article 3, paragraph 1, talks about common but differentiated responsibility. Article 3, paragraph 2, talks about precautionary measures, and Article 3, paragraph 4, talks about sustainable development, the three key principles underpinning the international regimes on climate change. Article 4 of the Convention is interesting because it says commitments. That's what the title of the principle are, and it divides countries into three groups in a practical implementation of the common but differentiated responsibility principle. First of all, all parties under Article 4.1 have some obligations. All states that have ratified the Convention must do certain things, and those things tend to be soft obligations. For example, develop, periodically update, publish national inventories on the greenhouse gas emission, formulate, implement, and publish national programs containing measures to mitigate climate change, promote education on climate change. So this tends to be soft obligations that all parties have. Article 4.2 contains more specific obligation for Annex 1 parties. So there's a group of countries listed in Annex 1 that has more specific obligation, and those countries are Western countries and economies in transition. They, according to one reading of this treaty, 
would have had the obligation to reduce their greenhouse gases emission at uh, 1990 level by the year 2000. So there is a reading of Article 42A and B that uh, leads scholars to believe that there was a specific commitment in the Framework Convention for Annex 1 parties to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions at 1990 level by 2000, but there are others that disagree with such strong obligation existed. Then there is um, the third group of countries that uh, the Convention indicates are under Article 4.3, the developed country parties and other parties included in Annex 2, they also have additional financial obligations. So the Convention really divides the contracting states into all that have got certain obligations, Annex 1 parties that have got obligations to reduce, arguably, greenhouse gases by 2000 and 1990 level, and then a third group of countries in Annex 2 that also must provide financial assistance to the developing countries to meet the agreed full cost incurred by those countries in implementing the Convention. And what is interesting is also the provision in Article 4.7, which links the implementation by developing countries of their obligation to the effective provision of financial assistance. So Article 4.7 is very clear. Financial assistance must be provided in order for developing countries to implement their obligations. The remaining provision of the Convention set up really institutions. So there's a conference of the parties that meets regularly, and in fact the next meeting of the conference of the parties is in Glasgow, and the conference of the parties is really designed to ensure that this treaty regime is up to date with scientific development, technological development, and if necessary new rules are adopted to promote and guide the parties in the implementation of the Convention. There is a secretariat that has been set up, and then there are subsidiary bodies for scientific and technological advice and for implementation. And then importantly, there is a financial mechanism that has also been set up to support developing countries in the implementation of the treaty. As I said, though, this is a framework convention. There's debate on whether countries had to reduce their greenhouse gases emissions or not. And that's why it was really almost as soon as the convention entered into force, there was a need to really start a negotiation of another treaty with clear and specific uh, commitments. And that's what really the Kyoto Protocol does. The Kyoto Protocol lays out specific and clear binding commitments for state parties. And in particular, Article 3 of the Kyoto Protocol specifies that the parties including in Annex 1 shall individually or jointly ensure that their aggregate anthropogenic carbon dioxide equivalent emission of the greenhouse gases listed in Annex A do not exceed their assigned amount calculated pursuant to the quantified emission limitation and reduction commitments inscribed in Annex B and in accordance with the provision of this agree, with a view to reducing their overall emissions of such gases by at least 5% below 1990 levels in the commitment period 2008 and 2012. So what does this mean? It means that Annex 1 parties must reduce collectively by 5% their 
the greenhouse gas emissions in the period 2008-2012, looking at 1990 levels. In other words, if country X in 1990 was, was emitting 100 units of greenhouse gases, by 2012, they will need to reduce these greenhouse gases by 5%, so to 95. Of course, that's a collective goal. So the joint collective goal of those parties was to reduce by 5% over 2011. These parties in Annex 1, their more specific commitments are listed in Annex B to the protocol. And for example, some countries are allowed to increase their emissions. Australia, for example, can increase their emissions by 8% in this period. Others have to reduce by 8%, like the European Union and the countries member of the European Union. But the goal is that altogether they will reduce their emissions by 5%. Developing countries do not have any obligation to reduce any greenhouse gas emission under this treaty in the application of the common but differentiated responsibility principle. And that was one of the main objections that the United States had to the protocol, and that's why the United States did not join this treaty. The Kyoto Protocol also introduces some interesting economic-based mechanisms to help countries, assist countries, in meeting their goals, the countries that must meet their goals under the Kyoto Protocols. And the three market-based mechanisms that I'm just going to mention for the purpose of this lecture are joint implementation, the clean development mechanism, and emission trading. So these are the three market-based mechanisms that are designed to essentially allow countries to reduce greenhouse gases where it's most economically efficient to do so, whilst at the same time meeting their obligation under the Kyoto Protocol. So interesting mechanisms that uh, have received praise according to some as they allow states to be flexible in the implementation of their obligation. Others have been critical saying that what polluting states are doing are essentially buying the right to continue polluting by reducing their emissions elsewhere rather than do their work domestically. So there are different views on this mechanism and each mechanism, frankly, would require a lecture on its own. Joint implementation, clean development mechanism, emission trading, just to give an idea of three of the mechanisms that were adopted under the Kyoto Protocol. Now we're moving to 2015 and we're moving towards the Paris Agreement. The Paris Agreement, it's a very interesting, innovative system of dealing with the climate crisis. And of course, by 2015, the urgency of addressing the climate crisis was apparent to everybody. I think it's undisputed that the climate crisis is becoming worse and worse by the day and the international community in Paris really wanted to take as strong action as possible. However, of course, the climate crisis is an environmental crisis, but it has strong repercussion on the economic system, on the way we live, on pretty much everything that we do, and that's why dealing with climate change has proven so difficult. But Paris managed to get a compromise, and everybody came on board this agreement. Again, common but differentiated responsibility is key to the Paris Agreement and is found in the preamble. The 
need to look at climate change and sustainable development. Again, sustainable development is fundamental for several countries in the world and the commitment to eradicating poverty. And what the Paris Agreement does, it lays out a goal. The goal of the Paris Agreement in Article 2, 1a, is to hold the increase in the global average temperature to well below 2 degrees Celsius, above pre-industrial levels, and pursuing efforts to limit the temperature increase to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. Recognize that this would significantly reduce the risk and impacts of climate change. To some extent, I think Paris acknowledged what scientists have told us, that some changes are inevitable. But what the Paris Agreement is trying to do is to at least ensure that the risk and the impacts of climate are mitigated as much as possible. And in order for us to do so, the goal is to limit the increase in temperature to 2 degrees Celsius and ideally to 1.5. And then, of course, the goals of the Paris Agreement are to allow states to mitigate and to adapt to the climate change that is inevitable. Even if we do everything that we need to be doing, some change will occur. We need to limit the risk and the negative impacts and adapt. For that, there's also a third important goal in the Paris Agreement is finance. Finance flows and ensuring that countries have the tools, the mechanisms, the funding, the technology to adapt and mitigate, particularly developing countries that may not have the tools and the mechanisms for doing so. The mechanisms that have been used in order to get states to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions and therefore to meet the goal in Article 2 is to have nationally determined contribution. So states will communicate nationally determined contribution. They all will tell the United Nations Secretariat of the Climate Change Convention what they are trying to do in order to achieve the goal of not increasing temperature above 2 degrees Celsius, ideally 1.5 degrees. So this is the new concept, the nationally determined contribution where states take the responsibility to make commitment to meet those goals laid out by the convention. Other interesting provisions, sorry, in the Paris Agreement are the notion of peaking. The idea is that under Article 4, states have committed to reach a global peaking, essentially the increase, and maximum increase in the greenhouse gas emission as soon as possible so that we really should achieve the peaking greenhouse gas emission as soon as possible and then start reducing our emission. And of course, the national determining contribution are supposed to be as ambitious as possible, what Article 4 says. Each party shall prepare, communicate, and maintain national determining contribution that intends to achieve. Party shall pursue domestic mitigation measures each party's successive national determined contribution will present a progression beyond the party's then current national determined contribution and reflect its highest possible ambition. Parties really need to do as much as they can, and obviously they need to do even more these days in order to ensure that the goals under Article 2 of the Paris Agreement are met.
other interesting provision, just briefly, because I think we are close to the time allocated to this lecture, are provision in the Paris Agreement that look at financing, loss and damage, compensation, financing mechanism. Those are all issues that obviously still require negotiations, because many of the provisions in the Paris Agreement are simply sketched out. So, the Paris Agreement, to some extent, tells states, this is what we have agreed to do. We need to take measures to ensure that we avoid the worst possible impacts of climate change. How do we do that? You, states, tell us in your nationally determined contributions what you plan to do, what measures you're planning to take in order to meet this overall goal. And the idea is that states are probably in the best place to determine what is doable in country X versus what is doable in country Y or in country C. However, these countries must do so in a progressively ambitious manner, so that you really need to do everything you can, and increasingly more and more, in order to meet the goal of this agreement. And, of course, there are many issues that are not addressed fully in the Paris Agreement, but are simply sketched out. Funding, liability, and so on and so forth. And those issues are issues that are going to be addressed in the conference of the parties that are coming up in November. Of course, this is a general overview of what international is doing in the field of air, atmospheric pollution, and climate change. I would say there are probably, there's a need to have one class or one lecture on each of these regimes to get into more detail, but hopefully this lecture has been able to provide you with at least an overview of what international environmental law is doing in this area. Thank you very much.